Well, we're in this new year. And as I looked at social media on January 1st, one of the sentiments I've heard expressed over and over again is, we made it. <laughs> we made it through 2020, a year that for many of us was, was very difficult, was at least very stretching, and, uh, and we made it. And so as we think about the last year that has gone by and look at it in the rearview mirror and look ahead to what's going before us, I want us to spend some time in the scriptures thinking about how we ought to live. I came across a poem on, I can't remember if it was the day before New Year's or on New Year's, um, but it was called All We Cannot See by Susan Lafferty. And her words uh, really resonated with me. It's in the form of a freestyle poem. And this is what she wrote. The new year approaches and we're looking sideways at the year that was, 2020. Planned calendar, undone. Change, unexpected. Grief, unwanted. Up close and personal reminders of all we do not know, all we cannot see. So we look back and remember, acknowledge what took place, ask aloud lingering questions, then surrender. Yield every part to the Lord, resting in the arms of the one who sees and knows. Breathe. Next, we look ahead and consider what's to come. 2021, and all we do not know, all we cannot see. Acknowledge the fears of the unknown, tendencies to hold back from making plans that might fall through. Then surrender all. What will take place? What will not? Trusting the one who sees what tomorrow holds, he knows. We look back, look ahead, and do what we know to do because he said so. Abide in Christ through prayer and the word, this daily. It's the only way. And those last words that we just read really resonated with me. As I mentioned earlier, there's nothing magical about the change of a calendar, although it does present us with a new date and a new day. And what we were called to do yesterday is the same thing we we're called to do today and tomorrow. And that is to abide in Christ through prayer and the word, this daily. It's the only way. And what she's articulating there is really what we want to call a gospel-shaped life. Abiding in Christ, remembering the mercies of God, and living in light of them. And so I want to kind of lean into a little bit of what she was expressing there, especially what it means to abide in Christ through the word. And to do so, we're going to look at what are some really well-known words from the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans. These are words that many seasoned Christians have memorized and have found strength in over and over again. And they're words that people new to the faith find fascinating and as an invitation to grow deeper. And so these words... Uh, the words of Scott McKnight in his book, Reading Romans Backwards, um, are, are very interesting. He said, these may be the most famous lived theology words ever written by the Apostle Paul. And what he means by that is these words are words to live by, and they're some of the most well-known, giving us direction and inspiration. So I want to look at these words beginning in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. Here's what the Apostle Paul, this ambassador of Jesus to the Roman Empire, said to Christians living in the heart of the Roman Empire. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, 
by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. These are some amazing words, and there's so much packed into them. We can make a number of observations. In fact, we could spend five or six weeks just seeking to dig gold out of these verses. But for today, I want us to make just four quick observations about this text to give us direction and guidance as we seek to launch into 2021 together. The first key point is this. Our lives are meant to be a lived response to the mercies of God lavished upon us. Your life and my life are meant to be a lived response to the mercies of God that he has lavished upon us in Christ. Paul begins this section by saying, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. And of course, whenever we see the word therefore, we need to ask the question, what is the therefore, therefore? It is highlighting for us something that has gone before. And if we would have read the book of Romans from chapter 1 up to chapter and through chapter 11, we would have heard the Apostle Paul talking about the wonders of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he's been talking about these mercies. He's already told us that salvation depends not on man's effort or desire, but upon God's mercy. He's told us that God's purpose is to make the riches of his glory known to the object of mercy. He's talked about how rebels like you and me may now receive mercy. And God's desire is that he may have mercy on all. Not just simply to Jews, which Paul was a Jew, but also to Gentiles. And that's why the gospel is going forth to the four corners of the world. Paul himself never recovered from the a mercy that God lavished upon him. You'll remember, perhaps, that Paul was an enemy of Jesus. He was a member of the Pharisees, the ruling class that conspired to put Jesus together. He was a persecutor of the early followers of Jesus, even seeking to put them to death. In fact, he presided over the very first execution of a follower of Jesus. And he was converted, of course, when he met the resurrected Jesus himself. And he never recovered from the grace and mercy that was lavished upon him. In fact, in a letter to Christians living in Ephesus, he said, In him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us. See, what Paul is appealing to these early followers of Jesus to understand and to know is that God is not stingy with his mercy and grace, but he lavishes it upon us. And he's appealing to us to action in light of that. I love what the late Anglican minister John Stott said. He said, there is no greater incentive to holy living than a contemplation of the mercies of God. And I think he's absolutely right. There's no greater incentive to living a Christ-like life, a gospel-shaped life, than a contemplation of the mercies of God. So that's our first key point. Our second key point is this. Our lives are meant to be an embodied offering to God as our logical act of worship. You see here Paul making his appeal to his brothers and sisters in Christ by the mercies of God to present their bodies, your bodies, as a living sacrifice. 
Now, this would have sounded really odd to the original audience. People in the ancient world knew about sacrifices. These were things that were killed and put on the altar. But here he says to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. It's interesting, especially in the context of the Roman Empire and Greek thinking. Bodies were denigrated. They were seen as irrelevant at best and evil at worst. They were, they were a prison in which the soul sought escape. And here Paul reconfigures that kind of thinking of these Christians living in the Roman Empire and says to them, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And it's interesting, he doesn't say just present your minds or your heart, but to present your bodies. And body recognizes that we are embodied creatures, that we are meant to be a union of soul and body, and we don't do anything apart from our body. And so Paul says, offer that to the God, uh, to, to the God who's lavished his mercy upon you in Christ. In fact, in Romans chapter six, he would say this, do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of, right, of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God and the parts of your body as instruments of righteousness. You see, in Paul's thinking, he recognizes that we live in these bodies and we use them either for good things or bad things. And he says we ought to offer ourselves to God as and the parts of our body as, as an instrument of righteousness, of right living, of right relating to people. And so he says to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. That word holy has several different meanings, but preeminent among them is the idea of being set apart. So present your bodies as a living sacrifice, something that is set apart for God. And because of his mercy and grace to us in Christ, this is an acceptable offering to God. And then he says this. He said, this is your spiritual worship. Now, I want us to make a quick reference to the Greek language here. I'm not trying to impress anyone, but to, to pull out some depth of meaning. The word that's translated spiritual in the translation I'm using is the Greek word logikos. And you can see just even in the what you might guess at how to pronounce it, logikos. It's simply a word that means rational or reasonable. And I think it's entirely appropriate to translate it as logical. And I put it here in, uh, in a standout for us, which is your logical worship. In Paul's mind, because of the mercy that God has lavished upon us, we ought to offer ourselves to God as a living sacrifice this is how we logically worship God. In other words, if God has lavished his mercy upon us, the only logical thing to do is to offer our entire lives as one big logical act of worship as it flows from what he's been saying. I find it really interesting what Eugene Peterson in his paraphrase of the New Testament called The Message said when he got to this verse. This is what he said. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. I love this paraphrase. I think it gets at the heart of what Paul is saying. All of life is meant to be now an offering to God in view of the mercies he's given to us. Not, not just this section or that section, but all sections, our everyday, ordinary life is meant to be placed before God as an offering. So my friends, I wonder if just launching out on 2020, we could consciously do that. We can thank God for the life that he's given to us, the grace and mercy he's lavished upon us, 
and respond by saying, my life is an offering to you. Here's another point. It's another key point. Our lives are meant to be lived in rightful rebellion against wrongful conformity. I know that's a mouthful, and to get our minds wrapped around it, let me just read it one more time. Our lives are meant to be lived in rightful rebellion against wrongful conformity. Look at what Paul says in verse 2. Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world. Paul knew that these early followers of Jesus living in the Roman Empire would have all kinds of pressures around them, all kinds of words, all kinds of teachings, all kinds of philosophies that sought to teach them the way they ought to live and the way they ought to be in this world. And Paul says, look, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world. J.D. Phillips, a translator of the scriptures, put it like this. Do not let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. I think that's a great way of thinking about this. You see, my friends, the world is always trying to disciple you and me, and we are all students. In one sense, to be a human being is to be a student, to be a lifelong learner. And the world, through its philosophy, through media, through our culture, is always telling us the way we ought to live. And so you're always being discipled, whether you're conscious of it or not. And so the question really becomes for us, who gets to rule our thoughts? Who do we allow to define reality for us? Who gets to be the one who informs and molds and shapes us and squeezes us into its mold, his mold, her mold? And the answer to that from the scriptures is Jesus. He's the one who gets to rule our thoughts. Again, Eugene Peterson, in paraphrasing what Paul is saying, put it like this. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. I think that's an accurate way of paraphrasing exactly what Paul is getting at here. And so here is the last and final point I want us to observe from this passage. Our lives are meant to be a metamorphosis into Christ-likeness. When Paul tells these early followers of Jesus not to be conformed to the patterns of this world, he also tells them, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That word transformed is simply the Greek word that means metamorphosis. This is the same word that is used actually in the Gospels in two different places to describe the transformation or what we come to know as the transfiguration of Jesus. You may remember that time in the Gospels when Jesus took his closest friends, Peter, James, and John, up onto a mountain. And there God glorified Jesus. He pulled back the veil, so to speak, and allowed the disciples to gaze upon the glory of Jesus. And the word that is used to describe that event was a metamorphosis of Jesus. And that word is used only one other time in the New Testament. And it's in another place that Paul wrote, this time to the Corinthians. And he tells them, We all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. Here, when he's talking to these uh, Christians living in the ancient city of Corinth, he tells them that when we gaze upon Jesus, the beauty of the gospel and the news that comes to us, as we contemplate that, as we take it into our being, as we marinate in it, we are being transformed. And the English word 
we almost exclusively use the word metamorphosis to describe what happens to a caterpillar when it goes into a cocoon and undergoes this transformation, this transfiguration, this metamorphosis, so that what comes out is something entirely beautiful, something that was different than before. That's what Paul is getting at here when he tells them to not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but to be transformed or to be metamorphosized by the renewing of our minds. And so as we renew our minds by the scriptures, I want to just give us two points of application. The first one is this, and should be obvious. We ought to offer our entire selves, body and soul, to our Savior for this upcoming year. We are embodied creatures, and everything we have should be a response of thankfulness, of gratitude for the mercies that are ours in Christ Jesus. We sometimes sing this song at Mercy Hill called, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, and it has this wonderful line in it. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Here Isaac Watts, the hymn writer, gets at the idea, the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God is so amazing, so divine, that it demands everything we've got. This is the logical response to having experienced the grace of God in Christ Jesus. And so let's offer ourselves to the Lord, body and soul, life and in death, not to ourselves, but to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And here's the second point of, uh, of uh, application. Let's be transformed by the renewal of our minds by the good news of Jesus. And let's be intentional about that. And so as we think about this point of application, let me just ask you this question, my friends. How is your appetite for the word of Christ? As you look back over 2020, over this last month of December, over this last week that saw the changing of the years, how is your appetite for the word of Christ? I find this to be a good question to ask myself at any given time. Am I being drawn to the gospel of Jesus over and over again? Do I find it to be exceedingly good news? And so maybe let me ask you the question this way. If you were to rate yourself on a scale of one to 10, with one or really zero being absolutely no appetite, to maybe two or three being it's there, to six or seven being it's, it's a growing appetite, to 10 being an insatiable appetite, where would you rate yourself in asking the question, how is my appetite for the word of Christ? I wonder if this is a question that we might, could ask one another. Just as we meet together, as we see one another, have a coffee or a lunch together or hang out in one another's homes, wouldn't this be an interesting question to ask one another? Now, I know some of us have, have been in situations where people have used guilt uh, to, to try to manipulate us in spiritual things, and that's not at all what I'm getting at. I'm asking us as disciples of Jesus, in view of the mercy that God has lavished upon us, how is our appetite for the word? What would it be like if, if you were to ask me that question and I gave you a response? What would it be like if I asked you that question and you gave me a response? What would it be like if we were really intensely curious about what we're learning 
in the Gospels about Jesus or in any of the scriptures? How can we encourage one another with that? And so here's another question I want to ask. How might you steadily grow in your mastery of the scriptures in 2021? I'm not just saying here's an opportunity for us to pick up a Bible reading program. Maybe that's the best thing to do is to read through the entire scriptures. But maybe another tactic would be to listen to parts of the scripture. We have apps that have Bible reading on it and and a number of different ways we can do that. What if we did that? Or what if maybe maybe something you might want to do is just to take a book of the Bible Let's say the Gospel of John or the book of Ephesians or Philippians. Maybe the Gospel, or the Gospel, the the book of James written by the brother of our Lord Jesus. And and what if you spent this year mastering that one book? Wouldn't that be something? What if you you spent time marinating in, in just one book of the Bible so that you actually mastered it? I think that would be really good. Maybe if all of us took steps to do something like that, in response to the mercy of God, we would grow together more healthily as a community of Jesus' followers. I love what J.C. Ryle once said. He said, Let us strive every year we live to become more deeply acquainted with the Scripture. The reason to do this is not to have bona fides or to impress other people, but simply because we have been blown away by the mercy of God in Christ Jesus. The great reformer John Calvin gives this instruction. He said, this is what we should seek throughout the whole of scripture, to know Jesus Christ truly and the infinite riches which are included in him and offered to us by God the Father. That's it. The scriptures are one long, beautiful and brilliant story about Jesus. And so when we open the scriptures, we seek to know him and the infinite riches which are offered to us by God in his rich and lavish mercy. I remember Jonathan Edwards um, and his resolutions that he wrote as an 18 or 19 year old, as as a late teenager, this one particular resolution that stood out. He said, resolved to study the scriptures so steadily completely and frequently, is that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of the same. What if something like this became the heartbeat of you and me? What if we had a desire, an appetite, to so study the scriptures steadily, completely and frequently, that we can see ourselves growing in the knowledge of the scriptures, and understanding who Jesus is. And of course, it's just not a mental thing. It's meant to impact and transform our lives. Eugene Peterson in his book, Eat This Book, had some wonderful words to say. He said, Christians feed on Scripture. Holy Scripture nurtures the holy community as food nurtures the human body. Christians don't simply learn or study or use Scripture. We assimilate it. Take it into our lives in such a way that it gets metabolized into acts of love, cups of cold water given in Jesus' name, missions into all the world, healing and evangelism and justice in Jesus' name, hands raised in adoration to the Father, feet washed in the company of the Son. The mercy of God is meant to have this transforming, this metamorphosizing effect upon you and upon me. And so Paul in another place would simply put it like this. 
I count everything as lost compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Uh, my Lord. And so let me ask you this question, my friends. What if 2020 became for you a giant leap forward in embracing the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, your Lord? Not just simply learning new facts about him, but so getting in tune with who he is and knowing him that you are metamorphosized in your entire being. Let's pray that for one another as we head into this new year. You remember that poem I mentioned to you at the beginning of our time together, All We Cannot See? I want to pick up with where we left off and read what she said with the rest of that. We look back, look ahead, and do what we know to do, because he said so. Abide in Christ through prayer and the Word, this daily, it's the only way. Ask for and walk in the wisdom and power of the Holy Spirit. We are foolish to launch out in our own knowledge and strength. Participate in the body of Christ. Fellowship with our brothers and sisters. Encourage one another. Love our enemies. Love. And go. Go and make disciples of all nations, serving our King here, there, and everywhere. So my friends, Mercy Hill Church, May you be so overwhelmed by the mercies of God that you eagerly present your entire life as an offering to God in 2021, being metamorphosized as you gaze upon Jesus.